Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're moving back into the world of literature. And as I mentioned the last time when we talked about literature, that we're going to be moving sort of uh, in a transitional uh, period here. We're going to be talking about sort of the end of Romanticism and the beginning of realism. Uh, the next uh, lecture on the literary section will involve realism and naturalism. Uh, but this one I want to just talk about sort of the transitions. And I want to go with four different traditions. Um, I want to go with the British, French, American, and Russian traditions, how they kind of transitioned from one into the next. Um, and there's some differences in how they transitioned and why they transitioned and even when they transitioned. Uh, the British and the French uh, tend to be transitioning earlier. The Americans and the Russians tended to transition much later. So the, the time periods are different. Um, the circumstances are different. But the philosophies are similar underneath. And the British tradition doesn't completely go into realism. The British tradition has some authors that would be considered realists and some that would be considered Victorian. Uh, same with the French. They don't completely go into realism. Uh, some of them start being uh, really the precursors to some of the modernist poets of the 20th century. Uh, so they, there are some differences in where they go and from where they came from. But I want to start with the British, um, because that's where we really left off last time. Uh, in the British tradition, uh, we talked about Wordsworth and the beginning of the Romantic period with the uh, preface, preface to lyrical ballads and the lyrical ballads and a little bit of the works with Coleridge. Uh, but I want to transition into the younger Romantics in this one. And the younger Romantics, people like Byron, Shelley, Keats, John Clare, uh, were all people who led much more excessive lifestyles, as I mentioned before. In fact, um, Byron is the old man of the bunch who dies at 36. Uh, the rest of them die early 30s or 20s. Uh, or in the case of John Clare, he's insane by the time he's in his early 30s. So these excessive lifestyles themselves tended to start a reaction against the Romantic period. But this isn't the only thing that causes the reaction against the Romantic period. Uh, one of the things that causes a reaction against it is the uncertainty in history, sort of the things that this these Romantic ideals unleash. Uh, the Romantics are very much about the individual and the individual overcoming. Um, and the Romantics are also somewhat a group who kind of rejected enlightenment. They, they ran on the opposite direction of enlightenment. You know, enlightenment was moving towards everything being explainable through science, through uh, reason, and the Romantics kind of embraced um, emotion, they embraced inspiration, they embraced creativity. You know, as I said last time, this is kind of where you get the, start to get the idea of writers as artists, really in the Romantic period. And you artists in the modern sense of the word, um, not artists as in craftsmen, as, as what most writers would have been more or less considered prior to the Romantics. You really have them as celebrities. You have them as um, people who their personal lives often become as much of an interest as their writings. 
uh, Byron in particular, was incredibly um, bad and incredibly popular for being bad. Um, his reputation was so bad that basically no one in England could hang around with him. So he had to leave England. Uh, but they didn't leave him alone. Uh, he's much like the celebrity of today who is disgraced, but the paparazzi will not stop following him. Uh, Byron is sort of the beginning of this weird tradition. Uh, when Byron leaves and goes to Geneva, um, people follow him. People will set up camps outside of his house and watch what Byron is doing on telescopes. Uh, people would run through his house at all hours of the day and night just to get a look at what he was doing. Um, and so you start to see this very excessive and out-of-control lifestyles. Now, the older romantics never really embraced these lifestyles. Wordsworth and Coleridge pretty much became elderly statesmen uh, and were respectable in the community. And they did end up living longer than the younger romantics. Um, but towards the end of their time, even, uh, there started to be a distaste in England for romanticism. One of the things you'll notice, whether we're talking about philosophies or literary trends, is it tends to be like a pendulum swinging back and forth. Um, when it goes too far in one direction, then the next trend that comes along kind of tries to swing as far as it can in the other direction and get away from it. So as we kind of move out of these uh, ideas of the romantics about the individual and inspiration and uh, creativity and the sort of intimate connection with nature, uh, we move into more realistic writers, um, uh, writers who are more interested in painting life the way it is. Uh, and in particular, in England, you have Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy. Uh, these are considered two of the big uh, realism slash Victorian writers. Uh, Charles Dickens has a lot of his stories that take place, um, you know, describing in accurate detail the lives of the poor, uh, the lives of uh, the miserable. Um, and he does this as sort of showing uh, life the way it is. And this is what the desire becomes, because people have seen through ne the Napoleonic Wars, through all of the other chaoses that came along from the Romantic ideas, sort of how much trouble you could get into with these things. Um, and people were starting to be more towards science, more towards naturalistic observation. And so the writings of Dickens are not showing people going out into nature and conquering nature and becoming enlightened. He's showing some of the cruelty and brutality of poverty, especially poverty in London. Um, a lot of his stories and novels are based around this. So you have very much uh, a scientific uh, uh, desire in uh, realism. A desire to kind of go back to the Enlightenment, go back to really looking at things the way they are. And that meant writing them whether they were good or bad. You didn't just glamorize everything like the Romantics would often do. Um, you didn't look at nature as being something that was uh, <clears throat> there for us. In fact, part of the 
the trend in realism is to see nature as something that is more indifferent to us. Um, the internal feelings in romantic uh, poems and stories would often be reflected and enforced by nature outside. Uh, in realism, there's sort of the idea that, yeah, you could be having the best day of your life and it can be miserable and rainy outside. You can be having the worst day of your life and the sun can be shining and the birds are singing. So there, there's a different um, approach from nature. And part of this is also because we're getting into the Industrial Revolution. And so people are moving more from country life to city life. Um, you're starting to get people working in factories uh, more than you're getting people who are farmers. So the, the Romantics, a lot of what they embraced was sort of that uh, pastoral life of the in the country and of the farmer and realism is starting to be geared towards more towards life in the city <clears throat> you also have very big shifts in science uh, especially through people like Charles Darwin and origin of species um, this starts to give a little bit different picture of how things came to be you know prior to Darwin for most people the way the world was explained was through religion. Um, there were scientists, there were intellectuals that were thinking in other directions, but for the general population, um, they took all of their answers from religion. Well, Origin of Species was an extremely popular book. Um, it was read by everyone who could read, basically. This is a book like, you know, think of the biggest bestsellers of today, and this would be how Origin of Species was, was you know, being read. Uh, libraries had long waiting lists to get it. Um, it was selling lots and lots of copies. So this is the first time you start to get some of these ideas about evolution reaching the, the, the masses. Uh, ideas about evolution have really existed since ancient Greece and probably way before that. Um, Charles Darwin's grandfather uh, actually had writings about evolution. But again, these were just for the intellectuals. And remember, with the Industrial Revolution, with, uh, you know, sort of rises in science, you have to have a more educated pub uh, population. And so you have more and more people that know how to read. And you have more and more people that get, get exposed to these ideas. And the people that can't read hear these ideas from the people who can so a lot of what uh, is going on in realism, in, especially in Britain, is saying we need to kind of get our head out of these wonderful ideas and get back to what's really going on, what's really in front of us. And so a lot of the description under realism tries to be as real as possible. Now the French, um, their romantics weren't quite as cheery as the English, but... The French had gone through the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror and the Reign of Napoleon, and so they had a much more, uh, I guess you'd call it, jaded view of our uh, connection to the natural world. But there was still sort of this idea that the individual could come, could overcome the natural world. Uh, you have people writing like Victor Hugo and Alexander Dumas who are writing these stories that are you know, very romantic stories, very full of adventure. Um, and you often have the hero triumphing in the end. 
Um, you know, you have these fantastic situations. Uh, so there's, there's sort of a sense of adventure there, but there's also a dark side to a lot of these stories. I mean, Les Miserables is a, uh, novel by Hugo that is by no stretch of the imagination, a happy book. It talks about life during the French revolution, life during the reign of terror and some of the horrible things that were going on. So in some ways, Hugo starts to, and the French start to kind of be a little bit leaning more towards realism a little earlier on. And when they move into realism, uh, you have writers like uh, Stendhal and Flaubert. Uh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary is is basically seen as a novel um, that is making fun of the romantic tradition. You know, the main character um, is sort of in love with all of these ro uh, romantic ideas of passion and, uh, you know, the grand life and all of these things. And it causes her to be um, so unhappy with her life that she basically ends up destroying her life. And so the uh, Madame Bovary is basically a direct attack on the romantic ideals. It's a direct attack on what this kind of thinking will lead to. And as I said, the French seem to be a little ahead of uh, some of the other traditions on that, including the British, and, and started rejecting some of the idealization a little bit earlier. Uh, and, and it mainly had to do with the political events in France. You know, England had its period of turmoil also, but remember England's period of turmoil was in the 1600s, not the late 17 and the 1800s as much as France did. You know, England's period of turmoil was the Cromwell years, the Restoration years, you know, and, and all of the back and forth that we talked about when we talked about neoclassicism. <clears throat> so the French and the English go from go through the transition first. Uh, the French also break a little bit in some of their writers after the Romantic period start to anticipate some of the writers of the 20th century a little more. Some of their writers are using a lot more uh, imagery. They're using a lot more um, things that paint uh, more imagistic pictures. Um, France, part of the reason for this is that a lot of the literary tradition in France is coming out of Paris. And Paris has always been kind of where all of the different types of artists go and all of the different types of artists uh, mingle. They, they drink together, they party together, they eat together, they discuss ideas together. And so one of the things you see in the culture of Paris uh, is that literature, art, music, um, these things are much more intertwined than they are anywhere else. And this is part of the reason that Paris... Uh, really starts to regain some of the ground as far as being the leader in literary trends. Uh, remember, England had been uh, in a long period of kind of imitating the Greeks and Romans, imitating the Italians, imitating the French, and then England sort of came to the forefront as uh, the predominant literature. Well, French, as you start edging through the 1800s towards the 20th century, uh, starts to move back closer to the center of everything. And even when you get into the modernist period, you see a huge explosion, even though these writers and artists are from all over the world in the 20s, they're all gathering in Paris. Uh, so a lot of the uh, 
explosions that happen in, in literary traditions and artistic traditions in the 20th century are really coming out from around Paris. <clears throat> now, when you go into the Russian and Americans, um, there's a little bit, they're a little bit later in time. And part of this is they're more isolated. You know, Russia, even though it's next to Europe and next to Asia, is still a fairly, fairly isolated country. And it really stays that way until Peter the Great um, starts to realize how far behind the Russians are in culture, in technology, in, you know, all of these areas. And under Peter the Great, they start to send a lot of the children from Russia start to go to France and uh, England and Germany. And they start to go to these uh, mostly but predominantly France and to sort of pick up this education, to pick up these new ideas, to try to bring, you know, Russia closer to the modern world, because Russia had been getting farther and farther behind. You know, Russia was still pretty much uh, socially the same place the rest of Europe had been during the Middle Ages, and now the rest of Europe had gone through the Enlightenment, and, you know, had been in that for a long period of time. So Russia under Peter the Great, they felt they had to catch up. This is actually something that will come back to haunt Russia uh, later. Um, and part of the reason it haunts Russia later is you really start to get a very divided um, population. Uh, you have the aristocracy of Russia that are very much European. They dress like Europeans. They shave their beards off or trim them down like Europeans. Some of them still keep their beards. Um, but they are adopting much more European traditions. And the Christianity in Russia was Orthodox Christianity. It was a very different form of Christianity from either Roman Catholicism or the Protestantism. And the traditions were not uh, similar to Western traditions. So you have most of the country and the peasantry living under one set of uh, culture and traditions, and you have the aristocracy under a very different set. And this starts to widen the gap as time goes on. And we'll talk about this as we get into the 20th century. Um, this is sort of what takes Russia closer and closer until they get to the Russian Revolution. But the Romantic uh, writers in Russia start really in the 1820s. And the big poets uh, that are Romantic are people like Pushkin and Lermontov. Um, these are their big names in Russian uh, literature. And really, these are two writers that, you know, start to put Russia on the map as far as being a, creating a uh, literary trend um, that is, uh, you know, world-renowned. It's world-known. Um, prior to these, to the Romantics in Russia, a lot of it is very much um, regional Slavic literature, uh, much like you would have seen the, the regional literatures of the Middle Ages uh, in the rest of Europe. And so Russia kind of quickly catches up and starts producing these writers that are, you know, can, can hold their own against the other great writers of, of the world. Um, and to the point where Russia, even as they move into the realism period, are producing writers that are considered some of the greatest in the world, period. 
Um, and you get when you move into the realism period in Russia, you get writers like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Now, <clears throat> Tolstoy, uh, you know, writes War and Peace, very much a realistic novel. Um, these, again, in, in Russian realism, like in the other forms of realism, there's a desire to describe things accurately and the way they are. Uh, Dostoevsky goes into realism, but in a little bit different way. Uh, he still has the realistic depictions of things, but Dostoevsky's bigger interest is in psychology. If you start looking at his characters, they are very much psychologically driven, which makes Dostoevsky one of the big influences on the 20th century, not just in Russia, but everywhere. Um, we will talk about him both in literature and in philosophy, because if you study existentialism and you look at anthologies on existentialism, which is a branch of philosophy we'll get to, um, they often start with Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky, even though he's not a philosopher. But his um, writings are embracing, you know, questioning a being. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be a human? Uh, on a very personal and psychological level. And he's a very big influence on a lot of the existentialist writers. You know, you have to remember that part of the reason I'm teaching these back, you know, going back and forth is that you really can't understand one discipline if you study it and don't know anything about the other. Because literature and philosophy have always gone back and forth, influencing each other, uh, agreeing with each other, arguing with each other. Um, and so you'll often find, you know, when you look at sometimes a philosopher, their inspirations were literary writers. And when you look at literary writers, their inspirations were philosophers. And this is very much true of Dostoevsky. So we're going to talk about him quite a bit in future episodes. Um, like I said, both in, as a literary writer, because he has a lot of, um, he has a lot of significance as you move into 20th century literature, uh, but he also has a lot of significance as you move into 20th century philosophy. So we will be doing a lot on Dostoevsky in the future. Uh, now, when you switch over to the Americans, the Americans also, their romantic period runs from about 1820 to 1865. And uh, by this time, by the 1820s, Romanticism has kind of died down in the other traditions, in the French and the German and the uh, English. Uh, but Americans and Russians, as I said, were kind of isolated from the rest of the world. Um, America even more so because we have a huge ocean in between us and the rest of the world. So the American um, romantic writers uh, are some of the ones we've talked about a little bit before. Um, Edgar Allan Poe uh, is, a, is an American romantic writer. Um, the uh, Walt Whitman, which we'll talk to in a little bit because he's kind of a transitional uh, person. Um, Herman Melville is considered part of the romantic tradition. You know, all of these are tying um, sort of nature in a, in, in a way that sees it as being inspirational, that sees it as, you know, the important thing is creativity, not science. Um, so, some that are not often thought of as being 
uh, romantic writers are the transcendentalists. But a lot of the ideas of the transcendentalists are important in the romantic movement. And the transcendentalists, the two main ones are Emerson and Thoreau. You know, this connection of nature that you see in uh, Thoreau with Walden and his other writings, where he kind of sees nature as someone, somewhere you go to kind of restore your humanity, to kind of uh, figure out who you are. You know, these are very much romantic ideas. Uh, Emerson, you know, talking about uh, wanting an original relationship to uh, God and the universe, you know, not going by what people said hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, but to have that uh, connection to nature and that connection to inspiration on a one-on-one basis. Um, So these two are also part of the Romantic tradition, even though they're often kind of moved over as being transcendentalists and completely separate. Um, They did share a lot of the ideas. They did inspire a lot of the ideas of the Romantic writers. Um, I put Whitman a little bit to the back because Whitman is really a transitional figure between Romanticism and Realism. Uh, Whitman, while he's writing starting in 1855, which is solidly in the Romantic period, he doesn't stop writing until basically he dies in 1897, which also puts him solidly in the Realism period. And there's a shift in Whitman's writing the same way there's a shift in writing in general uh, around 1865. Uh, As with, uh, you know, historical events causing the changes in Europe uh, from Romanticism to Realism, the big cause in uh, in America is the Civil War. Um, This is something that... uh, You know, Romanticism is thriving up until the Civil War, and then pretty much after the Civil War, we move into realism. And part of that is uh, we start to see how destructive some of these ideas can be, how destructive this kind of um, idea of, you know, the individual just doing it all on their own, the individual uh, that, you know, is indomitable, uh, because we really almost completely fell apart during this war. And the country almost dissolved into, uh, probably would have dissolved into lots of little countries. And so after 1865, um, there's a desire to kind of put the country back together. Because during the Civil War, or I should say prior to the Civil War, most Americans never went far beyond their homes. Uh, you, you probably were going to be born, uh, grow up, get married, uh, grow old, and die within 20 to 50 miles. Uh, that was probably the most you ever got away from your home unless you were you know, a pioneer or an explorer. But that wasn't what most people were. Most people were going to live and die in the same area. Uh, the Civil War takes, you know, uh, young men from Maine and New Hampshire and New York and sends them down into Alabama and Louisiana and Texas. Um, And people start to see there are very different ways of living, uh, very different ways of speaking. People eat different kinds of foods. They wear, you know, different hairstyles. And so part of the draw for Americans for realism 
was Americans started to want to know, what are these other Americans like? And so the desire was when you read something uh, that's set in Texas, you're not from Texas, you want to know what Texas looks like. What are the sounds? What are the smells? What are the foods that people eat? How do they speak? This is another big part of realism that sort of is more, much more pronounced in America than it is in uh, the other traditions. Uh, and that's the uh, idea of using dialects. One of the things that America has is a lot of very different dialects. Now, the, the British tradition, the French tradition, they all switch to really using the language of everyday people, um, but they don't have as many dialects that they're working with, um, you know, that are, that are completely different. Uh, whereas in, you know, the United States, uh, someone in New England may barely be able to understand someone from Alabama and vice versa. And so you have this uh, strong desire for not only accurate descriptions of the way people speak and what they eat and what they wear and the scenery, but there's also a desire to have things written in dialect. Uh, and this is something we're very familiar with still. This is one part of realism that has never really gone away. You know, when we read a story that's set in a particular part of the country or a particular part of the world, we want to hear people speak the way those people actually speak. Um, it would be very odd to have a story set in Texas uh, with cowboys and you have people using a New England accent when they're speaking to each other. Uh, our expectation is if this is a Texas story involving Texas people, there better be Texas accents and some Spanish, you know, uh, all of that thrown in because that's what you're going to get there. So one of the really big writers of the realism period in the United States, and actually the biggest writer in the realism period, is Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain's novels are written in dialect. Um, Huckleberry Finn, if you read that novel, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the characters don't speak the same way as each other. Uh, Jim and Huck do not speak the same way. The people in town do not speak the same way as the people out in the country. And as Jim and Huck head up the Mississippi, they're going into different areas, and all of these people have different accents. They speak in different ways. And this is one of the things that, you know, there was a real uh, desire for in the realist period. Because part of what Americans are wanting to do after the Civil War was put the country back together. You know, before they kind of had it in their, idea, their heads that, well, you know, we all kind of more or less are the same. We're Americans. And then after realizing it was such a vast country with so many different ways, um, they wanted to have a little bit more of that. They wanted to understand a little bit because that would be something that would help sort of remake it into one country. And so you have a lot of things that are written in dialect in the realism period. And again, with all of these traditions, with the Russians, uh, with the French, with the English, and with the Americans, there is that sort of influence of science, the Industrial Revolution, and Darwinism, where nature becomes this thing that is um, really... Uh, amb amb uh, ambiguous towards us. It doesn't care one way or the other. 
It, it doesn't, it isn't for us. It isn't against us. We do our thing. It does its thing. You know, this is the big break, one of the big breaks from the romantics where they felt whatever the person was feeling, nature would reflect. You know, generally it was positive, but you, you know, you have to remember there were the Russian traditions and there were also people like Edgar Allan Poe. You know, his stories, when the characters are sad, it's rainy and gloomy outside. You know, the internal and the external uh, feed off of each other and reflect each other. Uh, when you get into realism, this is seen as kind of being silly. It's kind of mocked. The idea that that's, you know, what's going on. People are trying to think, um, you know, they want their literature to, to act more like real life. They still want fiction, but they want fiction that they can relate to because it, it connects to real life better. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to break off for there. Um, I will in the future be going into all of these traditions uh, much, much more. Um, we will have, you know, in future seasons, I'm going to go every single one of these literary traditions, every single one of these philosophical traditions. You know, we're going to have an entire semester's worth of, you know, podcasts dealing with each one of these. And then as we get into even farther along into, you know, future uh uh, seasons, uh, I'll even be focusing in on more and more on, you know, particular uh, writers of time periods, um, where you'll get, you know, an entire semester's worth of work off of maybe, you know, a few authors, and, and that'll uh, constitute an entire semester's worth of, you know, looking at their writings uh, and discussing them. Okay, uh, I hope all of you are doing well, I hope all of you are staying safe, and I hope to talk to you again soon.